For sports fans, the first public basketball game was played and the Liverpool and Nottingham Forest football clubs were founded. But in psychology history, this was 13 years after Wilhelm Wundt opened up the first laboratory that many say finally distinguished psychology from other sciences. So within 13 years of psychology, quote unquote, starting, we already figured out that this oniomania, this compulsive buying disorder occurs. And you also see it in the earliest clinical psychiatric textbooks of the 1900s. And throughout the 1900s, though, it goes relatively unnoticed. It's of relative little interest, except for by psychoanalysts and consumer behaviorists. And consumer behaviorists and marketers and economists will play a big role in our story today. But it goes of relatively little notice until the 1990s. When clinical studies start coming out about it and meta-analyses are done that kind of say, okay, there's these 20, 30 studies that we have to look at of the past the past decades, and we should take a look at this more. And then there's been some renewed interest in the past few years, more focusing on online consumer practices. So what is it? Well, at the most basic definition, we know that compulsive buying disorder is when somebody excessively, obsessively shops to the point that it causes them some kind of difficulty. Now, this difficulty can be in personal life, in terms of social relationships, because a lot of compulsive buyers want to do it alone. So maybe it's affecting their friendships and their relationships. It can also be in terms of financial difficulty, getting themselves in debt. And I think that that's the most obvious one but it doesn't always have to be the case. It could also be harmful professionally in the sense that maybe they're supposed to be working or getting jobs done and instead they're really focused in on shopping. They're too busy on Amazon and that causes them harm in their professional life. Now that is the definition at the most basic function, but psychologists really can't agree on a couple of points. The first one being how to classify it. Now CBD has not been classified as a distinct disorder since the DSM-3, and we are on the DSM-5 now. So since the DSM-3 and the DSM-4 and DSM-5, it is not included. But it's really hard to classify this, where some psychologists say, okay, it's an addictive disorder, and some people say that's a personality disorder. Some will say, ah, it's more an obsessive disorder, like more in terms of obsessive compulsive disorder area of things. And part of that is because of its very high comorbidity rate which is just a fancy word for saying it exists with something else. Often we see people with CBD also having things like bipolar disorder and depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or an eating disorder. So it can be hard to see where CBD lies when it's with other things. Now that does not mean that CBD is never by itself. It can absolutely exist by itself. It just has a very high rate of existing with another disorder of some sort. So that's the first disagreement. The second disagreement is in what shopping means. And what I mean by that is, is a purchase necessary in order to be considered shopping? And there are two different camps in this. So the first camp is saying, okay, if you are window shopping and you're obsessed with window shopping, that counts. But there is another camp that says, no, A, that's really, really rare. But B, it should be the purchase that goes through. And in that camp, there's a theory that has a bunch of support in which there are four distinct stages of somebody who goes through this process, which is one, anticipation, two, preparation, three, shopping, and four, spending. And you can probably figure out what each of those means. Anticipation stage is the urges, the thoughts, the excitement, 
The second stage is in the preparation. Ooh, where am I going to go buy this thing? When am I going to go buy that thing? What credit cards am I going to use? Third is the intensely exciting stage, the actual shopping experience. We're past the urge. We're now doing the thing. And then finally, the purchase itself. Like I said, in this camp, the purchase is necessary. And this can be met with a couple of consequences in terms of feeling the relief from the urge, but also feeling a bit let down and disappointed with oneself. So this disagreement makes it kind of hard to define exactly. But another thing that makes it kind of difficult to pinpoint what it is, is in finding the prevalence of the disorder, finding the epidemiology of it. So one thing we do know is that this disorder is much less common in developing countries, aside from the wealthy elite that are in those countries, which makes sense, less disposable income. But in developed countries, we find that people with lower amounts of disposable income can actually have this disorder to the most severe. Now, there's another question that we have of prevalence. But before we go into it, I want to do a thought experiment with you. I'm going to give you four words, and I want you to imagine the kind of person that fits these words. Okay, maybe what they're wearing, what are they doing, what do they look like? Okay. All right. Shopaholic, collector, hobbyist, hoarder. I'll give you those words again. Shopaholic, collector, hobbyist, hoarder. You got that image in your head? Or words that may describe them? Here's my question for you. How many of those are men? And how many of those are women? I think some of you are picking up where I'm going with this. You don't have to tell me your answer. I've run this informal experiment in a couple of classes before yours. And the results were interesting, but expected. Almost unanimously, shopaholics were women. Collectors and hobbyists were men. And then interestingly, hoarders were more culturally dependent. The students from Western countries typically said that hoarders were men, but the East Asian students said that hoarders were women. So it was a bit interesting. But there were two words that I specifically wanted to focus on. The other words were just red herrings. Shopaholics and collectors. One of the difficulties we have in identifying the prevalence of compulsive buying disorder is in the words that we use and how we describe our hobbies. Women are much more likely to say that shopping is a hobby of theirs, while men are much more likely to say that collecting is a hobby of theirs. Now, those two things might consist of the same behavior to the same extent, but there's a stigma about shopping a lot that isn't there when somebody says that they are a collector, at least not to the same extent. And so what ends up happening is when studies are done, there are certain studies that have shown that 95% of people with CBD are women and only 5% are men. Now, it can be simultaneously okay to say that the results of those studies are viable while also saying that the results might be misleading. Those can both exist in this situation because those studies could have found that, yes, if you asked people about how often they shop, you might get answers where men say, okay, no, I don't shop that much, but I do collect. And so they aren't, they don't meet the criteria. Well, simultaneously, having other studies that show that if you change the wording of it, to just the behavior itself, you get much closer to an equal ratio of men and women who might have CBD and who might qualify as having CBD. And this is an interesting thing to think about because, like I said, there are different stigmas around both of them. Collecting is seen as a 
worthy hobby a lot of the time, especially in certain circles, especially in certain hobbies. Collecting is seen as just a normal part of that hobby, whereas shopping by itself might not. Let me tell you a story from when I was in college. I lived in a co-ed dorm and I was smack dab in the middle. Everybody to my right were men and everybody to my left were women. There was a guy that lived to the right of me that had the biggest DVD collection I have seen to this day. This guy had to have had over 300 DVDs and Netflix existed. Streaming existed here. But he had a huge collection of DVDs, some of them very, very rare, some of them foreign. And people would actually go to his room and like, and quote unquote, check out his movies. And he was known as the movie guy. People really liked it. People thought his collection was really, really cool. Now, the problem was, was that he was so dedicated to building up his collection that he would often skip all of his classes to wait on an eBay auction to end or to go to the video store and see what the clearance items were that day. Now, thinking about that, thinking about our previous definition that it's causing a difficulty that as a student seems to be a professional difficulty is causing him professional hardships. He is doing worse in classes because he is too focused on, quote unquote, collecting. Now, a girl to my left didn't have quite the acceptance. She would buy clothes every week or so. So she ended up having quite a few clothes. Now, part of this could be expected because she also got the hobby of working out and lifting weights. So her body was changing. And we also lived in the Midwest United States where our four seasons are quite distinct. And so it's pretty rare to be able to wear the same stuff back to back seasons. And I'm not saying one of them had a problem or neither one of them had a problem or both have a problem. I'm not here to say that. But what I am here explaining is that people thought that she had a big problem. People thought that her having all these shirts was terrible that she was a shopaholic. Even though she went to school, like she went to all her classes, she had other healthy habits to the fact that she only bought stuff on the weekends when she had time. But the guy to my right who had a large, large collection of DVDs and missed class in order to cultivate those DVDs was cool. Now, I hope this story helps exemplify two key things. One is that the social circles that one is in, in the social setting that one is in, can play a huge part in identifying problematic behavior. In the story, she was seen as having a problem, but he was not. If one is in a community in which having a lot of something is a more normalized behavior, it can become very difficult to identify a problematic behavior because it looks like everybody else. And social settings and normalized behavior is where our story starts to overlap with FOMO. Now, FOMO is a relatively recently identified phenomenon, even though it's probably existed for a long time. It was identified in 1996 by Dr. Dan Herman, who is a marketing strategist. And what he noticed in focus groups in which they were trying to understand why people were buying certain things and making certain purchases, he noted that often people would cite the reason for making a purchase, not for the gain that they were making, not for the pleasure that they were going to get, but because they were scared of what would happen if they didn't make that purchase. It was the, I don't really want to see Hamilton. I mean, I do. It was the, well, I'm not necessarily making the purchase because I want to see Hamilton. It is that I am scared of it being a huge missed opportunity because who knows when they'll be back or how expensive they might be if they're successful. 
Now, he put this into a paper in, in 2000, and then FOMO was actually coined in 2004 in a Harvard Business School op-ed by Patrick McGuinness. He also identified FOBO, which I don't think we're going to talk about today, but is also an important concept, the fear of a better option. Let's not pretend that this is a new behavior that humans are taking part in. I'm not old enough to have heard anybody say this, but apparently keeping up with the Joneses was a commonly used phrase to mean that you want to do as good as your neighbor is doing. There's also the extreme example, which takes place in Singapore, something called kiasa, in which one takes part in selfish behavior and spends a lot of time so that they don't lose out on an opportunity. You try to keep away from being disadvantaged. So this could mean that, let's pretend I have kids, I go and volunteer at the good school down the street a couple hours a week because I want my child to be enrolled there. I'm at least going to try. Because what if I don't? Well, then they're definitely not getting enrolled there, right? It might also mean that I stand in line for a couple hours when the new bubble tea place opens up because it might be the best bubble tea ever. And this might be the only opportunity I have to get it. Now, I think psychologists harp on social media a lot. And I don't want to be one of those because I think social media has done a lot of good in the world. I live in Japan. My parents live in the US and I can talk to them for free on the phone every week because of social media, because I can call them on Facebook Messenger. And that's awesome. It keeps me connected with people from across the world. And that's awesome. But like many other things, social media made FOMO a lot worse. And that is where a lot of attention has been focused is on how social media has made this a lot worse, including in Dr. Herman's research himself. But why is this? Why does this happen where we are so afraid of losing out on something? Why are we so focused on the missed opportunity of seeing Hamilton instead of the fact that, oh, fun, I get to see Hamilton. Let's do another thought exercise. I have with me a bag of dye. I'm going to take two out. I'm going to put one in each hand. I think it's dice. I think the plural is dice. One in my right hand and one in my left hand. These are standard die. I want you to pick one. In my right hand, no matter what you roll, a one to six, I will give you $3,000. The one in my left hand, if you roll a one to five, I'll give you $4,000. But if you roll a six, you get nothing. Which one do you pick? Keep in your head which one you picked the first time. I'm going to come back to it. Okay, now I'm going to take out of my bag a different colored pair of dice. These ones are red because they signify loss. Now, in my right hand, I have a die in which no matter what you roll, I am taking $3,000. In my left hand, I have a die so that if you roll a one, two, three, four, or five, you lose $4,000. But if you roll a six, you lose nothing. Which one do you pick? Who, for the first hand, picked the right hand? The guaranteed $3,000. If you're raising your hand right now, then you agree with over 80% of people. You are the majority. Congratulations. Okay. Who on the second choice picked the left hand? The opportunity to lose nothing. Okay. If you're raising your hand right now or thinking, okay, yeah, I picked that. You agree with 92% of people. Okay. Put your hands down. If you raised your hand either time, you chose the exact wrong answer. Mathematically speaking, you should have picked the left hand the first time and the right hand the second time. Because the average gain you would make five out of six times in the first choice would have been $4,000. You had a five and six chance of making $4,000 instead of $3,000. Probability speaking, you should have picked that one. For the same reason, the left die is the wrong choice in the second option, because more often than not, you are going to lose more money than you would have had you lost the guaranteed $3,000. 
Don't worry if you got it wrong. You just took part in a Nobel Prize winning study. Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky did these and other studies and came up with something called the prospect theory. Now, unfortunately, Tversky died before he could be awarded the Nobel Prize. And if Daniel Kahneman's name sounds familiar to you, it's because there was a signed reading in this class, Thinking Fast and Slow. And for visitors to today's class, I really recommend it. It's one of the best psychology books ever written. But what this and other studies helped them come up with that won the Nobel Prize was something called prospect theory. And what prospect theory says is that people will take larger risks to avoid loss than they will for gains. This is called loss aversion. We want to avoid loss more than we want to gain. And part of that is because we feel more negative emotions when we lose something, stronger negative emotions when we lose something, then we feel joy when we gain something. So for those who chose the left die the second time, you wanted to avoid loss as much as possible. Even if you only had a one in six chance of avoiding loss, you wanted to take it. It was worth the risk. And a majority of you chose the right hand for the first one because it was the safe option. You didn't really want to take a risk to gain nothing. You were fine and content with the right hand. Now, bringing this back to FOMO, that is why a primary reason might be to avoid that loss, to avoid missing out on something. Even though, yes, we all we do want to gain whatever it might be, our primary drive is to avoid losing out on an opportunity or money or an experience. We don't want to be left behind. And losing out can be many things. It can be money. It can be an opportunity. It could also be social status. By not doing something, we're losing out on the social relationships we could build or even the bragging rights. And I want you to keep this in mind because we are going to bring this FOMO conversation into a topic that maximizes FOMO to the best extent. Gaming. Now, when I say gaming, I mean both video gaming and board gaming, tabletop gaming. The first thing I want to explore is in video games, because I think by understanding how it works in video games, you can see it in board gaming. So in video games, there are multiple ways that companies establish and maximize FOMO. One is in microtransactions, in which maybe some of you have experienced in the freemium apps like Candy Crush, in which, okay, I'm so close. I've been on this level for a week. And if I just spend 99 cents, then I can maybe get past this level because I can beat it in two more moves. Yeah, I'm going to buy more moves. Okay, that's one way. Another way that they do it is in limited run skins. And we call these cosmetic upgrades. We call them that because ultimately they don't really make any difference in gameplay. Whether you're dressed as X or Y, it doesn't make you any better at the game. It doesn't make your character any stronger. It only makes you look different. So clearly these skins don't make any benefit, right? They don't give any benefit. Why are people buying these? Well, wrong. I specified that they don't make any gameplay benefit, but they do give a social benefit to a lot of people. These can happen in a couple of ways. One is in peer pressure. The fact that the social setting that you're in, the community, the group that you're in, you might be pressured into buying a certain skin or feel the perception of peer pressure. If everybody in your group decides that, hey, this weekend, Fall Guys is teaming up with Spider-Man and we're all going to get the Spider-Man one so we can match and we can look like a team and you don't go and buy that Spider-Man skin, you're going to stand out. You're going to feel excluded. Or 
you might feel like you might be excluded. Do you really want to take that risk with your friends? That's what a lot of people ask themselves. Another way is in standing out. A lot of these kind of games intentionally make the default character lame. They look super lame. In fact, in many games, the word default is used as a pejorative. You're a total noob if you use the default character. So what ends up happening is many people buy the skins just so they can gain that social status that, hey, I'm not a noob. I'm an experienced player. I am a member of this community. On the flip side of that, what happens is that new players see everybody else in these skins. Okay, well, I'm the the full character, but a guy who's dressed as a toilet just ran by me on my left and Spider-Man's on my right. So I guess maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to buy one of these skins and they end up buying it to conform. This idea that people are just copying or conforming to others' actions, especially when they aren't sure of what the proper action is, like what they're supposed to do, like a new player to a video game, is called social proof. It's actually from like 1984 by Robert Cialdini. You might have heard it called informational social influence. But interestingly enough, we actually see it in a lot of cult and cult-like behavior as well, which if you're a visitor to class, that's my specialty is in cults. So what happens is they say, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. So then I will buy these skins and they join the community and they join that. And then it ends up in a loop. And in both these situations, it can be quite harmful. But oftentimes that what also happens in these limited runs. So like my earlier example where Spider-Man is only purchasable this weekend, it increases impulsivity. Now it's been a while since people have traveled, but the travel industry has perfected this art, especially on sites like Expedia, where they say, oh, there's only two rooms left. And there are five people looking at this right now. You better get it. If you shorten the amount of time that people have to make a decision, you are increasing the impulsivity. The other way that video games have perfected the art of FOMO is gameplay related. So I said earlier, cosmetic doesn't affect gameplay, right? But a lot of games, they will lock down certain things to increase FOMO. In my opinion, is more harmful because what happens is You create a class system of the haves and the have-nots. It puts certain people at a distinct disadvantage than others. So what I mean by this is in games that say, for this weekend only, we are going to unlock a class. We are going to reveal a new class. And maybe also it's not time-related. It oftentimes doesn't have to be. Maybe in Magic the Gathering, there is a new card set that comes out. And guess what happens? That new card set? is really good. If you don't have it, you are now at a disadvantage. And people want to get this new card deck really, really quickly because eventually people are going to figure out how to counter it. Eventually, everybody's going to figure out, okay, this is that weakness. So if you want to win, you want to feel that rush of adrenaline of victory, you better get that new set really, really quickly before everything stabilizes again. Another way of doing this is in giving part of the collection for free but then locking the other part of the collection behind a paywall. This could be something like Robin is free, but if you want Batman, you got to pay for that. Or giving you all of the Scooby-Doo gang except for Scooby-Doo. You got to pay for Scooby-Doo, but the others are free. It's withholding a wanted part, a desired part of the collection that if you don't have it, you feel incomplete. I already have Fred, Velma, Daphne, and Shaggy. I even have Scrappy-Doo, but I don't have Scooby-Doo. I want Scooby-Doo. Things like that. 
And what happens is that if one or the other of these occur, whether it's the gameplay related stuff or the cosmetic stuff, or even worse, a combination of the two, what studies have shown is that this causes addiction. And over time, this has gotten so bad and so many people have gotten addicted because of these methods that gaming disorder is now a distinct diagnosable disorder. What companies were able to do was create so much FOMO and it's a continuous stream of FOMO that people got addicted to the endorphin rush, to the urge to buy, to the impulsivity that they became more unable to stop themselves from playing and then buying. And companies are profiting off of that. Now, video games doing this has been making the news a lot in the past couple of years, and rightly so, partly because some countries have banned certain practices that make use of FOMO, like loot boxes, in which some countries have found it to be in violation of their gambling code because kids were doing loot boxes and that was considered allowing kids to gamble. But we're going to shift our gaze over to board gaming because board gaming has figured out also how to maximize FOMO and have borrowed some of those tactics to video games and applied them to a very specific way of selling their games. And that's crowdsourcing. So just so we're all on the same page, crowdsourcing is the idea that you can go on a platform like Kickstarter or Indiegogo or GameFound, and instead of having to pitch your idea to a company, you pitch your idea to the general public, and then if they think it's a good idea, we'll pledge certain amounts of money. And in some industries like board gaming, it has turned into what is essentially a pre-order system. Now, don't get me wrong, there are still very successful Kickstarter campaigns that are done by small companies. In fact, the number one game on Board Game Geek, which is the largest database for board games and has the most users, the number one game on there was a Kickstarter game by a small company, by Isaac Childress. It was that one guy. But there are also big companies that use it as a pre-order system. And not only do they use it as a pre-order system, they use it as a hype machine and use it to make a lot of money by maximizing FOMO. Now, I'm going to use one company as an example because A, they are very, very good. Their games are good. Their marketing is good. And their knowledge of psychology, you just have to applaud. I'm also picking them because people know them. They are a very successful company. And so people know them. And again, they make very good games. I quite like their games. But I am also picking them because while they are very good, they also have some practices that are somewhat questionable in terms of the harm that they can cause. And the company I'm going to use as an example is Simon. Now, hopefully none of you have tuned out because I'm using it because there are a lot of fans. I'm one of them. I really like their games. Blood Rage is definitely a top 30 game for me. But I want to use their Kickstarter campaigns as a way of exemplifying how companies of both video game companies and board game companies use FOMO to sell more product and create an addiction loop. So one thing that Simon does very, very well is in shortening the campaign period. Other games, when they're on the Kickstarter platform, will tend to have more than 20 days that you can back. You have time to research. They'll do live playthroughs during it. And you can take your time to research it. What these long Kickstarter campaigns allow one to do is to do more research figure out, okay, maybe we can do a, a group pledge. Maybe we can decide on who's going to back this. There's just more time to organize that. But Simon shortens it. And it has the same effect we talked about earlier for the one week and only Spider-Man costume, where it increases impulsivity. If you only have seven days to figure out if you want to spend this money versus 20, 
that purchase is going to be a lot more impulse based. Okay, so we have people on an impulsive mindset. Got it. Hooked. Now, how are we going to create enough FOMO in terms of value? Now, the other thing they do is something that you see on most Kickstarter campaigns, and that is different versions of the game, a deluxe version and a retail version. And oftentimes, this looks like a cosmetic difference. What we talked about earlier, skins for certain games. Maybe instead of cardboard money, it's metal coins. Ooh, nice. Or maybe instead of cubes, like wooden cubes to move around your pieces, maybe they're miniatures. Cosmetic differences that ultimately you're going to play the same game, no matter which version you're going to have. Okay, So that's not a CMON exclusive. But where CMON differentiates itself is in two specific ways. One is in how they run their campaigns in terms of updates and unlocks. And two is in what they lock. So going to updates. Again, updates are not an exclusive thing to CMON. Most Kickstarters do this. Okay. And they should. You think about it, that the backers are basically your investors. And if you're going to invest $200 into a game, you want updates. But what CMON and other companies are very good at are providing daily updates, frequent updates, to get people re-excited. Because they realize that a lot of people are backing on the first day, and then there's a drop-off. And then a lot of people back on the last day. So by providing frequent updates, you're going to keep the surge going, for one thing. But you're going to keep the people who backed on the first day really excited about your game. Because they might make that purchase and then go, ooh, I kind of have regret. I kind of have buyer remorse about that. But then they come back the next day and learn about a new unlock. And maybe it's their favorite superhero this time. Or maybe it's a really cool character. Or maybe it's a new gameplay mechanic. Or maybe it's that you want... The backer's input. This is playing off of something. You're getting them reinvested emotionally in the project. And this partly has to do with the last concept I think we're going to talk about today, which is the endowment effect. What the endowment effect says is that we put more value on things that we own, things that are ours, than something that isn't. It is that we are more likely to keep something that we have and not want to give it up then we would be to seek it out if we did not have it. Let me give you an example. There was a study done during the Duke, North Carolina basketball game. And if you're not a college basketball fan, let me just tell you that this game is super, super important. Every year, both schools are going to circle that on their calendar. Fans will camp outside the stadium for weeks just to enter the lottery to win a ticket to this game. So after the lottery was done one year, a study was done asking how much you would buy it for you would buy the tickets for if you didn't win. And if you had won, how much you would sell it for. The average person who did not have it said that they were willing to buy those tickets for $170. When the people who won the ticket were asked how much they would sell it for, the average answer was $2,400. What a difference. $170. I will buy it for $170 versus I will sell it for $2,400. Why? The endowment effect. People who won the tickets. We're already making pre-memories. They were already thinking about how much fun it was going to be to be at the game. The atmosphere. Maybe they were going to paint themselves or hold up a sign. Maybe they were going to ask their crush to date night because who says no to the North Carolina Duke game? And those emotions, those memories that they had already created with those tickets were worth more to them 
They didn't want to get rid of that. And that's what's partly happening with these updates and these reinvigoration of emotions is that people, as they see these cool new unlocks, are already starting to create memories. And the more stuff that gets unlocked, the more memories that they are creating with that, the cooler that they think it is. And what ends up happening in a very real effect is that remember that board game geek site I talked about earlier? There's a running joke from Hobbies Board Gamers to never look at the Board Game Geek page before the game actually is released because it'll be filled with people giving 10 out of 10s on there. Because people who have spent this money, A, they don't want, they've already spent the money, so they really want to enjoy it, but they're more likely to enjoy it because they're already more emotionally invested in it. They have already emotionally enjoyed it. So it creates a hype upon release when people look at the Board Game Geek site and say, wow, look how many 10 out of 10s this game has already. I'm going to get into this. But then comes the problem. Because what I think Simon does better than anybody else, and this is not a good thing, is they lock gameplay. Which we talked about earlier in video games can be really, really harmful. Especially if those locked gameplay items are seen as better or cooler or essential. So they have a couple games in which this happened. One of these games is Rising Sun, in which each player is their own clan with their own special powers. So everybody's playing a, has a slightly different strategy based on the clan that they are. One of the clans that are seen as the most overpowered is the Fox Clan. Now, some will argue that it's broken and some will argue that it's not. But the Fox Clan is often desired. Well, guess what? You could only get that during the Kickstarter. So if you want it and you didn't back it, sorry. Another game, Blood Rage. One of the characters that people either love or hate is Fenrir. Blood Rage is based on Norse mythology. Fenrir was a Kickstarter exclusive. So if you want to play as Fenrir, who is a popular character in Norse mythology, for those who are studying it, well, that's too bad. You're not getting it. Now, to some extent, they have gone back on this a little bit, and there are rumors that Fenrir might be available in the future, but still, that's like seven years after the Kickstarter came out. So what ends up happening is that the resale value skyrockets. What might have cost $75 on Kickstarter can cost hundreds of dollars more. Take the Blood Rage Kickstarter, for example. The Kickstarter was $75 in 2015. Now, of course, you have to adjust for inflation. But now, if you want that same Kickstarter bundle, you have to pay something like $800. If you want Fenrir by themselves, you're spending a couple hundred dollars. Rising Sun, same thing. If you wanted the Rising Sun Kickstarter, it was $100. But you could also go all in for everything for something like $200. And that got you the metal coins, a play map that was like neoprene, and another expansion. But now, that extra box that has the Fox Clan in it is something like $300. Now, you could say that they didn't know that the Fox Clan or Fenrir was going to be this popular or was going to be this good. To which I reply, one, didn't they play test it? Didn't they play test it and realize that this clan was going to be very good and people were going to probably really dig it? But two, I'm going to counter you with the Marvel United Pledge. Because this one, I think where before there was a bit of respect, this one irritates me slightly. Because they got to team up with something as popular as Marvel, which means that before that game is even released, it is going to have a fan base. 
And they announced that this was going to go to retail as well, eventually. And so what ended up happening was that Simon added a bunch of exclusive heroes and villains that you could only get if you backed the Kickstarter. People who bought it at their local Walmart or Target were not going to be able to get these things. So remember earlier when I talked about that there were ways to lock down gameplay. And I said one of them was to lock down an advantageous item. Well, we already talked about that. But another way was the Scooby-Doo example, where I said giving them parts of the collection in which there is a desirable thing that they cannot get. Well, this happened in the Marvel United Kickstarter. One of the expansions you can get at the store or on their website is the Guardians of the Galaxy expansion, in which you supposedly can play as the Guardians of the Galaxy team. Notice who's missing here. There's Star-Lord, Rocket Raccoon, and Groot. The villain you can play as is Ronan. Who's missing there? Uh, how about the female on the team? Gomora. This, I think, irritates me more because it hits on representation and locking down gameplay. Now, this is, I think, slightly annoying because it's making the female of the team exclusive to Kickstarter. Imagine that somebody is going to Walmart and picks up this game because them and their daughter enjoy Guardians of the Galaxy together. And they go, they bring it home, and they figure out, oh my goodness, Gamora isn't here. My daughter really likes Gamora because she's super cool. Because she's super cool. Well, guess what? You're now going to have to go to the resale market and figure out how to buy it. What I'm saying is that the Kickstarter pledge was $200 to get everything. But I'm seeing the resale value right now for something like $300 or $400 out of stock. This is just a bit of a problem. Because then what could happen is that that parent goes, okay, well, the next time they run a Kickstarter, I better get it. Just in case. And that's where FOMO hits in. I'm not saying that people back Simon purely for the FOMO. That is not what I'm saying at all. This would not work. If Simon made bad games, Simon's games are great and are loved by a lot of people in the community. There are people who will absolutely back on the first day just because they love all of the previous Simon stuff. But there is also a good chunk of people whose first instinct is to back it not because they want it, but because of fear of missing out. It's the fear of missing out of the advantages clans. Or the fear that they will not be able to buy it unless they pay 200, 300, 400% of the original asking price, which a lot of people cannot afford to do. And that's how you get addicts. There's a secret that people tend to say out loud. If people ask, should I start going on Kickstarter? The answer is pretty universally no. Because once you enter into that, you will not be able to stop. That constant endorphin hit, the constant urges to get into it to get into a new pledge so that you don't miss out on something, whether it's a Simon campaign or one of the hundreds of campaigns that are always on there, it becomes an addiction loop in which companies maximize FOMO to get people to buy it and then people cannot stop buying it. And what happens is people with addiction are more susceptible to FOMO. You don't even have to have 100% FOMO, even 50% FOMO buying. And you have a loop that it can be harmful. And you have a loop that ends up being harmful to a lot of people, but goes unnoticed because the board game community has normalized 
large collections and multiple boxes coming to your door. I am one of those people. I think this is home for me because I am a compulsive buyer. I stayed out of Kickstarter for years because I was told not to do it. And of course, what happens? One of my friends and I decided we were going to go into a Kickstarter together. Innocently enough, we were going to go 50-50 on one of the Kickstarters for a game we both wanted. And I never stopped. I have a super backer tag on me now because I've backed so many games. In fact, in the year or so I've been on the platform, I have backed 53 games. 54, actually. So how do we get out of this addiction loop? Well, that's where there's good news. Is that as this phenomenon has become more researched, therapies have gotten better. For one thing, we have found that group therapy works really, really well. Going to Debtors Anonymous, for example. What we've also seen some promise in is cognitive behavioral therapy, in which you would try to identify certain things in your thinking. Like, do you use shopping as a coping mechanism? It's okay if it's sometimes. Retail therapy is a legitimate way of coping. But it's the amount of times that you're using it. Could you be doing something else? This is partly because studies have supported the idea that those with compulsive buying disorder have a lower threshold for distress, meaning that they will feel more stressed at a lesser level. And it's kind of hard to explain this concept. So let's pretend that you rank every day on a scale of 1 to 10 of how stressful it is. And you say every day that is a 7 or above in stress level, you get to buy yourself some ice cream. I hope it's Ben and Jerry's. Half-baked is the way to go. Now, you would be pretty good at identifying what is a 7 out of 10. And you might not have that many 7 out of 10 days. But somebody with CBD would feel stressed the same amount of stress you feel at a 7 out of 10, at a 3 out of 10. And then, because their primary coping mechanism is shopping, what happens is that they feel stressed more often, and then they shop more often. They buy more ice cream. They buy ice cream 7 out of 7 days instead of maybe 1 out of 7 days. And that's how it starts. So part of the therapy is identifying that, hey, this is something you do. Maybe we'll work on increasing your threshold for stress or working on instead of shopping, starting to work out or something that does not constitute needing to purchase something. We've also found because of the high comorbidity rate that SSRIs work well. SSRIs for those visitors today are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So what it does is it works on the serotonin in the brain. So serotonin is a chemical that carries signals between your nerves, your nerve cells in the brain. Now, it does a lot, a lot of things, one of which is possibly to have a positive influence on mood and your emotion. Now, when serotonin is reabsorbed or reuptaked or reuptook, reuptake, reuptook, this process stops. So what SSRIs do is they block that reuptake, which means that serotonin can go further. It can make contact with more nerve cells. And what we think might be happening is that that continues is it encourages more mood here. And meaning that this messenger chemical that helps positive mood is hitting more of your nerve cells. Now, we don't think that it's low serotonin levels specifically that causes depression or other mood disorders or even CBD. But hopefully by keeping the serotonin there, it'll at least improve symptoms. And so we found that those could be working for those with CBD. But overall, there are things to do. 
Also, one thing you could do is evaluate your social situation. And what I mean by that is, remember earlier when I talked about the peer pressure that one might get if your group likes Spider-Man and so you all decide that you have to have Spider-Man, you have to buy the Spider-Man skin? Studies have shown that if you feel, if even the perception of having more social support, not having to conform with the others, but having more social support in your decisions means that there is less FOMO. Meaning that if you feel like even if you don't get to buy a Spider-Man, your friends will still play with you and not make fun of you or anything. If you feel more social support from them, you're less FOMO and less likely to get addicted. So one thing that could help is just stepping back and saying, is the situation that I'm in normalizing a problematic behavior? And a lot of the times you can't do this alone. And that's why there's therapy. It is very serious. CBD looks a lot like an addiction. And like other addictions, oftentimes you can't do it alone. It takes effort. It takes help. If you think you or somebody you love or a friend might have this, encourage yourself or them to talk to somebody. The worst slash best case scenario is that they say it doesn't seem like you have it and you're just out the money. But maybe people will get help that need it. We live in a very consumeristic culture. And hobbies like gaming use things like FOMO to continue that. And this promotes addictive behavior. But it doesn't have to be that way. I'm not saying to stop buying altogether. I'm not saying lose your friends. What I am saying is that there is a way for us all to enjoy the hobbies and the communities that we are in while staying healthy. Thank you. That is all for class today. Oshimai. Bye-bye.